This week, Travis Spencer, CEO of Curity, is with us to discuss modern access security. Then we have a whole panel of guests with us to discuss the Joe Sullivan case in a special two-parter. That means we're skipping the news this week, so we'll have two weeks' worth of news for you next week. This is Enterprise Security Weekly. Let's get started. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. The shift to remote and hybrid work over the past two years has accelerated application development on cloud infrastructure. However, securing these new assets has lagged behind. Qualys CloudView, the next generation of cloud security posture management, delivers an end-to-end multi-cloud security and compliance solution encompassing the entire application lifecycle from build to runtime. CloudView enables enterprises to assess their cloud security and compliance posture, identify risks and gaps, auto-remediate issues, proactively enforce best practices and prove compliance in audits rapidly and efficiently. Identify your most vulnerable cloud assets by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. Customers want fast and frictionless digital experiences, yet also expect protection against breaches, privacy violations, and fraud. Drive engagement by optimizing security and convenience to attract and retain customers. Use the Ping One cloud platform to build, test, and optimize digital experiences. The no-code orchestration engine weaves together authentication, user management, and MFA, all of which can enhance security, drive engagement, and boost revenues. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ping identity to learn more. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy International Accounting Day. This is episode 296 recorded on Thursday, November 10th, 2022. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria. And joining me is the Master of Marketing, the Mayor of Mayhem, Tyler Shield. Hey, Adrian. Good to uh, hear your voice. Good to hear yours, too. <laughs> also joining me is the Herald of Hacking, the Captain of Crypto, Mr. Tyler Robinson. How are you, Tyler? Happy accounting day. I, that just does not, that doesn't work. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's not happy. Well, I said happy International <laughs> Accounting Day, but it's not international happy accounting days just oh okay just, fair fair <laughs> i know that doesn't sound too exciting but recently somebody shared with me I, I give them a shout out but i'm not sure they they want me to give them a shout out on this but they were really getting into a podcast called what the fraud and it's two accountants now i mean it sounds like it could be really dry but one of the accountants has been doing stand-up comedy for for years so uh, you know, great chemistry between the podcast hosts and they've got these, I mean, fraud stories are crazy, crazy. Like, like these stories about, uh, you know, someone working for like a small town in the Midwest and embezzling something like 45 million over seven years. It's like, how did the town even have that much money to lose? But, uh, fascinating podcast. And there's a lot of, uh, crossovers, I think, between fraud and, and InfoSec. And, you know, I think some CISOs even may have fraud underneath, right? CSO, right? Not, maybe not CISO. I was going to say, there's no point in all this security stuff if there's no money involved, so... Yeah. All right, uh, quick announcement here. You can now find us on Instagram. 
and I think uh, we, we may also show up on uh, Mastodon here pretty pretty soon. We're looking at that as well. So, But on Instagram, you can follow us for highlight reels, giveaway announcements, and more. And it's SEC Weekly. For those listening, we're throwing it up on the screen here, but it's at sign SEC Weekly is our handle on Instagram. Same as our handle on, on Twitter. All right, so our first interview here is sponsored by Curity. Today's topic is modern access security, ditch passwords, implement zero trust, and secure APIs. We're excited to have Travis Spencer, CEO at Curity, with us today. Travis has worked extensively with organizations in various industries in various countries. His broad market exposure, coupled with a background in application development, helps him allows him to work with organizations uh, on both low-level technical issues as well as high-level questions which is always, always a great combination. Welcome, Trap. Thanks, Adrian. Great to be with you and your other guests today. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, uh, definitely a good conversation that we've got queued up for today. Uh, the the title, um, title is pretty broad, though. Uh, so there's, um, there's a lot we can talk about today. Maybe you know, give us a little level set today. You know, tell us a little bit about what what Curity does before we we dig into uh, some of the topics here. Sure. So, what we do at Curity is we help our customers answer the question of who you are online, and it, it's such an easy thing for us people to do. Adrian, you and I talked before uh, today's session, and I recognize you the moment you joined in there. As people, we we know each other, we know each other's voices, we know um, each other quickly, and then how to identify each other. But a computer, it, it's not so easy. Uh, they have to be, computers have to be taught and they know very little, just a zero and a one. So we have to build on it from that. And it can be pretty complicated in the end. And so there's a lot of standards, thankfully, these days that help with that. And at Curity, we've implemented those and have certified our implementation of them so that our customers can use the implementation confidently to know that they're arriving at the correct answer of who the person is that is interacting with their digital services and their their data. Now, is that is that leveraging uh, things like behavioral analysis, um, conditional access, some of the heuristic-based detections for unusual logins. I'm assuming this is leveraging like OAuth and SAML and JWT tokens and all of the the new modern auth. Is it combining mm. those things with additional uh, additional means to validate that? It is, and and so you kind of that's the the crux of it there, Tyler. Is like you have all these different applications, all these different APIs on one side, and on the other side you have all these identities, all these repositories, all these ways of logging in and, and maybe uh, taking into account behavior, maybe taking into account geographical location. All these different kinds of uh, identities need to be integrated into all these different applications. And so the, the Curity Identity Server, which is our product, can use standards like OAuth and OpenID Connect to provide the answer to that question of who you are in a way that they can consume it. So then they don't have to worry about, you know, do we use behavioral analysis or was there um, uh, all these different things going on? It's just it gets a token from the platform that it trusts and then it can use the data in there knowing that, um, that those proper checks and authentication uh, were performed. 
That's awesome. Now, now as far as the uh, – is that proxying those typical authentications where you guys are the identity provider, but uh, for integrations for applications that may not understand one of the, the many authentication languages that you guys speak or, or a different application speaks, are you able to proxy that authentication or bolt on an integration to that so that you can actually move to a more modern authentication even if uh, particular places don't support that uh, directly? Mm-hmm. So the, there are different approaches to adding in OAuth and OpenID Connect, and a lot of uh, folks out there are taking a proxy approach. Uh, we ourselves do not, so we don't provide a gateway per se. Um, instead, applications integrate into uh, our identity server using the protocols themselves. There's lots of frameworks, toolkits um, out there. We provide some of them ourselves in various languages. And then after the token is issued and you want to start calling an API, that's more a place for a proxy to get involved. And so we leave that to others like uh, reverse proxies or um, uh, whatnot. That's awesome. So from a zero, I, Adrian, I think you're muted or maybe I can't hear you. No, go ahead. No, there we go. No, I, I was going to ask, um, so from, from that standpoint, does this provide a, a mechanism for uh, pure, purely cloud identity uh, companies and as well as hybrid companies that are leveraging some cloud identity and some on-prem? Uh, does that mix and, and integration happen fairly naturally with your product? With our product, it does. Uh, our product can run anywhere, whether that's in a public cloud or private cloud. Uh, it can run on-premise or computers under your desk. Um, we we found it important to support any cloud environment because we see a time uh, already now and, and, and more so in the future where organizations will be spanning multiple clouds and really wanting to take the identity with them because that's really the thing that will will hold back that multi-cloud deployment. Um, so it, it works in all cloud environments. And uh, uh, the reason being is because it's it's going to be increasingly necessary to span those different uh, cloud providers. Yeah, so, so what I was going to ask, um, you know, talking about you know, switching uh, gears a little bit with uh, identity. You know, identity is something that's, um, you know, kind of, kind of a. I don't, I don't know what it brings up for most people, but uh, you know, I used to just connect it with uh, with individuals. We didn't used to call, you know, service accounts and you know, automation tools. You know, the accounts, the identities that uh, those systems had, that devices have. You know, we didn't typically uh, consider. Uh, un- under this, uh, you know, the the more general uh, user management group. But, you know, nowadays, like we just had somebody on last week talking about uh, RPA, uh, security with uh, robotic process automation, you know, which is kind of a-, a fascinating area because it's somewhere in between like a service account, something that would use an API and a user account because it's using an application the way a person would, not the way a machine would. Um, hmm. So, so, what you know is—is is that a big part of this? You know, especially talking about zero trust. Do you, you have hmm. to—is that a big chunk of this? Figuring out like how you handle those accounts as well, because you need visibility on those. You know, I think we've seen a lot of breaches where those kinds of credentials, because they're not really—you know—they're they're not visible, they're not thought of. 
uh, mm-hmm. and sometimes get it easily abused. Yeah, I, I think really what what is needed and what we're trying to do, at least at Curity, is to provide the sort of building blocks or the, the Lego bricks that you can construct all sorts of different identity solutions to all sorts of different identity problems, whether that's, you know, robotic identities or account identities or device identities or actual natural person identities. Um, there's, it, it really comes down to different methods of identification, different places where you're going to store those identities, um, maybe different kinds of tokens that you'd issue to, uh, to, to those different consumers. Um, um, maybe it's a JSON web token like Tyler mentioned, or maybe it's a, a Seabor uh, binary token. So what we're trying to do in our product, at least, is to connect all sorts of different authentication um, methods or or um, types, and then also store identities in lots of different places, uh, because there are a growing number of use cases, and the ones that we know of today are not going to be the same ones that are going to exist in three years, five years, 10 years from now. So if we provide this sort of framework or platform on which all sorts of new things can be built, um, our product will continue to do provide value to our, our customers, despite their use cases changing and evolving over time. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I am curious from a, from a zero, this, this almost sounds like a solving one of the, the core pillars of, of zero trust and how that uh, identity piece plays into. Uh, Arguably the first piece, roadmap, right? right? First pillar. Yes. I, I would I argue that needs uh, to be the first place yourself there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah. I like to say back back when uh, Google did, you know, the Google engineers did the original Beyond Core um, talk. You know, the like step one. You know, they're kind of laying out step ones of how we did what they called zero trust, which was Beyond Core. Like step one was, you know, figure out what people needed access to and and get a directory together, get identity solved for like the first mm. three or four years before they could do anything else, right? No, exactly. And I, I, the analogy I like to use sometimes is like it's climbing a, a mountain, you know, at the top of the mountain, the summit is answering the question of what are you allowed to do? That's where we all want to get to. But unfortunately, we have to answer the question of who are you first? Um, and, and from there, we can start to figure out your entitlements. And you know, the time will come when we need to know less about you in particular uh, with things like Web3 and uh, decentralized identity. But at some point, we need to know something about you so that we can answer the question of, of what are you allowed to do? And so that first base camp as you climb up the summit is is that, is authentication and um, the, the summit then being authorization. So it's really important, I think, when thinking about zero trust and um, uh, providing checking and verifying all the time of, of what you're allowed to do. First and foremost, you need to figure out uh, who people are, who accounts are, uh, and then what their entitlements are. How how are some of the, the protections and mitigations being put into place? This is kind of a common technique we've started to see many of the ransomware gangs and, and many of the threat actors uh, going after leveraging things like the raccoon stealer, the red line stealer, built-in browser functions and stealing, um, where they're taking the, the tokens or the sessions or, or the mm. cookies, and they're leveraging those uh, in order to gain that authentication. What are, what are some of the protections and means you guys are, are leveraging in order to to combat some of that? Yeah, there, there's something called a, a proof of possession token. So that in order to steal a, a token, uh, you have to 
there's two types. It, it, there's a bearer token, a proof of possession token. So if you have a bearer token, that's like cash. If if I'm lucky and I find 10 bucks on the street, I can just pick up that $10 bill and walk in uh, to the shop and spend it. And the cashier is not going to ask me like, hey, did you find this on the street? I'm, I'm the bearer of that note. Uh, they'll just accept it and use it. So that's kind of like what you're talking about in ransomware or whatever, where they're finding those, those tokens and, and grabbing them and taking somewhere else and just using them like cash. And then there's another kind of token, which is called a bearer token. And that's more like a credit card where it's bound to me as a person. I've got a pin every time I, I touch it to a, um, a point of sale system. I've got to put in a, a, a pin code to unlock it and make it useful. And, and so those kind of tokens are bound to me. And every time I use them, I got to prove I have possession of a, of a secret. And so um, in protocols like OAuth and uh, uh, others, you can add on top of that support for holder of key tokens uh, or proof uh, of possession tokens like a credit card. And so those are, are helping to avoid that um, stolen token problem you're talking about, Tyler. Yeah, I love that. Um, that's a great analogy, the, the cash versus credit card. Uh, I'd never heard it put that way, but that I think that really helps to kind of understand the difference between the two there. Yeah, because if a, a ransomware gets a hold of a token, it still doesn't have your your pin or your secret. You can't prove possession of that. So that token that the ransomware has stolen isn't going to be useful. And so uh, there's a, a profile or a sort of um, extra standards that are built on top of OAuth and OpenID that are called financial grade API or FAPI. And those mandate the use of, of these proof of possession tokens. And these are our banking grade and military grade versions of OpenID and OAuth. And so uh, our software implements those and even non-financial organizations more and more are turning to that version of OpenID. Um, so using that in, in large-scale SaaS providers where they can't afford a breach, they can't afford identities to be stolen or tokens to be exfiltrated like um, you're, you're talking about. And and so, you know, for your audience, that's something to definitely go and, and check out is to learn more about FAPI. You can read about it on our website. We've got tons and tons of resources um, that will explain, you know, what is a sender-constrained token and how does this work? Um, how can I implement this in my API and start leveraging that? I, I am uh, curious around some of the, the more modern uh, authentication types like FIDO2 and some of the passwordless stuff really being forced and pushed. Uh, I'm assuming all of that is is integratable and, and integrated and capable. Um, can you speak to some of the more uh, novel stuff and additional stuff you alluded to earlier that got my, uh, my attention around uh, Web3 and, and potential blockchain immutable identities? Uh, what sure. kind of stuff are you guys working on there? So first of all, I'll tell a little bit about WebAuthn. Um, WebAuthn is a great protocol. There's a lot, a lot that goes into actually implementing that. And really what I'm excited about is how you can use the simplicity of OpenID because it, it really is a very simple protocol to integrate into applications, whether it's PHP or Ruby or Python or whatever. It, it, it's quite easy. Um, and then to be able to, from a product like ours, uh, integrate using WebAuthn. So any of the complexity in that um, is sort of shielded and protected from the application. And even though you can implement things like WebAuthn, um, 
it's great if you can leverage existing standards and not even have to know about other identity systems or authentication methods that are being added in your application just keeps working. And that's one of the the values that we provide. And so as far as Web3 goes and uh, crypto-based uh, identity systems like uh, decentralized identity and self-sovereign identity, um, it's the same story there. It's like, if your application keeps working, it's keep calling these APIs and all of a sudden now the identity is a, a decentralized one. It, it it doesn't much matter to the application. And I think that's a, a great way that we're gonna see uh, Web3 and those things uh, adopted is that applications can just kind of function on this OAuth OpenID Connect substrate and then start using identities where now as users, we don't have to release as much information. You don't have to know me in particular. You just need to know I'm a, a, a citizen of America and a permanent resident of Sweden. And I'm old enough to to uh, consume alcoholic beverages and I can, I can vote in this place and that place and things like that. So you don't have to know about me in particular, Travis, but you just need to know these sort of things. But to the application, it's just still talking OAuth is still just talking open ID. And if we use uh, things like financial grade versions of those, uh, the the security of it is still quite high. And there's um, a lot of work going on in the Open ID Foundation, which is the standards body that defines open ID and builds that on top of, of OAuth to bind open ID into uh, decentralized identity. And uh, that's really what we're looking at and working on right now is implementing those protocols so that we can issue verified credentials so that we can uh, interact with wallets, things like that, and then provide that into our uh, our customers' applications, continually using that that OAuth and OpenID Connect base that, uh, that they've established. Now you mentioned um, a lot of resources on the Curity website um, and, and you, I, I think it's it's hard to overstate um, the the amount of resources and tools you have. Like like you've got the on the security side alone, you know you've you've got some different uh, you know, like you've got a developer portal, you know a bunch of stuff there. Then you've also got the OAuth.tools site. You've got the Nordic APIs site. Um, is that I don't know, is that part of the DNA of the company is just to have all these educational resources or does that just really, uh, is that the easiest way to educate the market as to like what, what you're trying to do with the product? Well, I mean, it it, it is part of educating um, the folks so that they know how to use our product, but I think it is more of our, our ethos. I mean, we started Nordic APIs to tell about everything to do with APIs. I mean, we're only focused on API security, but there's so much more that goes into it. It's the design, it's the business models, it's how do you create that network effect and platform with an API and security is part of it. And we can tell that bit of the story and, and even that uh, we can't tell the whole thing. So, you know, building that community, building that group, bringing them together in, in person events and at, at summits and um, sharing information on the blog and the social media, that was just like, there, there's so much to say, so we need a place to say it. And then with OAuth tools, I mean, that that was born out of a need that we ourselves had. I mean, we have a server that can do so much of OAuth and OpenID Connect. I mean, if you take all of those specifications and print them out, they're as thick as War and Peace five times over. And we've implemented almost all of that. And so we need to have some tools that can interact with our server so we can just doink around and 
test this stuff out and try different things, show different things, and it just doesn't get it done in curl when you're when you're doing it yeah. all day long. So we had to had to build that. And then when it comes to the the website, I mean, there's just so much to say, and to explain that in a coherent way. Um, we just have to write a lot. We have to create a lot of videos and and explain a lot of things. And so I think it's just to make sure that people get the right information and can leverage these great standards, leverage these tools and and build things with them. Yeah, now, um, you know, maybe we can talk about the future a bit, you know, so certainly, you know, one topic that comes up a lot is the you know, the, the often continually blurring line between personal and uh, corporate or, or, or work account and, mm. and those identities. Like, it, you know, didn't initially occur to me when I started at the job I'm at that I should create a, uh, a separate GitHub account, you know, mm. to, to interact with our with our repos and <laughs> do code reviews and, and uh, submit pull requests and all that. Uh, but yeah, the other day I noticed everybody else has this like dash, you know, company name account. And here I am using my, my personal account that's been around for 15, 15, 20 years. And I, I see that a lot with, um, you know, like, like Apple products are the same way. Like there's not, mm. you don't really have like a work Apple ID to log in here, but like, mm. you know, where is this going? Like, like, are some of these standards going to help with that where maybe you can have one ID and the, the ID has both a work identity and a personal identity or, yeah. you know, is it going to continue I, to be messy? Well, unfortunately I think it will continue to be messy, but I think <laughs> I hope my hope is that we'll, we'll be cleaning those things up as we go. Um, really, I have a lot of hope for, for uh, decentralized identity and self-sovereign identity. It, I see it as a, a paradigm shift uh, for our society from like the horse and buggy to the automobile. It's that revolutionary. I mean, pre-internet versus internet. Um, and in those cases, uh, Adrian, like we'll have a wallet. It will have some information. It might be on our phone. It might be uh, hosted at some sort of trusted steward, uh, some trusted website. And there we'll be able to release information like you're in a certain team uh, you, you belong to a certain cohort that uh, you can develop code together with those people. And so you won't have to release all sorts of information about your specific GitHub account, but just that you're in this cohort, you're in this group, you have the right to review code. And for this other group, you also have uh, push rights into that repository. So it won't be your your identity per se anymore. It will be the the attributes about you and uh, a wallet or a, a steward will be able to safeguard that for you. That's really my hope so that that it, it isn't corporate or non-corporate. Uh, it isn't personal or work anymore. It's more just what are the, the attributes about you? And then the receiver of that will be able to verify that credential, verify that you are a member of that cohort. You're a member of that group of people who are writing code and, and say, yeah, I, I believe that this person is in this group because I trust this issuer of that attribute, that the, the issuer of that credential. Right. I, I noticed that with uh, with everybody jumping to Mastodon recently uh, from from Twitter, uh, I got set up on there as well, and I, I thought I already had an account over there, but apparently not. 
and, and I, I got very confused about, you know, okay, what, what this is uh, with, with the Mastodon model is obviously very different from Twitter, where, um, yeah, I knew that the server I was connecting to was run by a specific person. I know who that person is, and I trust them somewhat. And uh, But I get a little bit confused about, like, okay, what can I do with other Mastodon servers? Can I not go to those? Can I talk on those? And uh, uh, one of the things I noticed is, is you can do some additional stuff to increase confidence that you are who you say you are. And mm -hmm. this is something I think I first saw with Keybase where – you could uh, drop in a DNX, uh, a DNS text uh, record, or you can, uh, you know, put put a key in the root of your website, something like that. You can uh, connect it to some social media accounts. So, so with the idea being, okay, each of these proofs increases my confidence that this really is the person that they say they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's really the key here is we need that trust. Right. So uh, other use cases that you and your audience might be familiar with is like if you want to uh, um, handle the health of the aging parent or something, you might need to get a power of attorney, which might involve like scanning passports and doing um, interviews like this where they can see you in video or hear you and then sort of uh, authenticating and identifying you. And and that gives trust then because you you verified that and they uh, are assured to a higher degree of, of who you are. And really what decentralized identity will bring to the mix is a bunch of these different trust anchors around the internet where it could be a, a, a code repository, it could be um, a, a legal firm, it could be, uh, like you're saying, a social network, all these different trust anchors then will will make accountability for what you're asserting uh, or what's being asserted about you. So are there, are there standards to help with that? You, you know, what, what is that, you know, it's definitely not convenient today. Like to go. No, it's not convenient today. And, and, and those standards, yeah. those standards are coming thankfully. And, and okay. really what I'm most excited about is that those standards are being built on top of OAuth and OpenID Connect. And, and those standards, uh, there, there's also other ones um, uh, sort of complementing OpenID, which is a standard called DIDCOM. Um, but then there's also the verified credential standard from the W3C um, and, and, and others. We'll actually be in San Francisco next week at the Internet Identity Workshop, or IIW, to talk about and help form those standards uh, that will, will help with these sorts of things that we're discussing now. They're in early days. Very cool. Very, very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's, I, I don't want to live in a world where every new account I open, I have to add a new text. No, record. we're, we're going to fix that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And, and, you know, love security, but, you know, another thing I hate are, um, I, I don't want to use hardware keys. Like, I, I know people mm. love them. They, they love their, their Yuba keys. Uh, or their Google Titans, and, and uh, they, they work for what they work for. But again, the inconvenience, you know, especially since I'm carrying a phone around with me, and I understand, uh, you know, the latest Fido, I think, is, is going to help with this, where your phone can be uh, now a security key. You know, it, remembering to bring them with me, and, and uh, yeah, mm. I, of course, I can't do anything simply, so I've got five of them, and sometimes I forget mm. which of the five that I use with a, a given service. 
Mm. Uh, so that that's something I, I I'm hoping we can move past as well because authentication, you know, it's huge friction for business. You know, the mm-hmm. harder you make it for people to use a service to log on, you know, I've noticed uh, a lot of consumer services now require 2FA uh, set up at mm-hmm. the beginning. They they don't give you a choice, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, uh, I'm worried if it, if it doesn't, you know, stay below the threshold of convenience here, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're in danger of bad practices or, you know, uh, people going elsewhere, you know, not choosing the most secure service because it's too inconvenient. Hmm. Or, or yes. relying so much on single sign-on that we uh, have one account that that gets hmm. breached and breaches all of them. So I think we've we've kind of got yeah. that fine line where we have to do a better job at uh, maintaining those those very secure accounts and, and doing a better job of the authentication piece, and then hmm. leveraging those for the single sign-on in places that are meaningful and have good security setup. And I'm I'm very curious on how you guys are doing some of that. So I've been reading some of your docs over here. <laughs> Yeah, I think the the thing I would say to the architects in your audience is make that decision irrelevant because what you decide today and how you do authentication today won't be the same as in two, three, five years from now. So what you want to do is you want to put down a platform that allows you to make changes to those authentication options that won't disrupt all the applications you've integrated with. If you got apps deployed out into the app stores. You don't want to have to go and, and recode and re-verify and, and get those those certified every single time you add a new login method. That's really a non-starter. You want to build a platform that's going to allow authentication choices. And so like you're you're talking about there, Adrian, we, we need to make sure that we have security, but also convenience. And WebAuthn uh, is great in the browser. It's being adapted now to work in, in uh, mobile devices. There's some discrepancies we found between Android and, and iOS. I think those will get hammered out. Um, and then we'll have some pretty pretty nice um, uh, convenient ways of logging in where, you know, with a phone I can, you know, enter a pin or use my face or or my finger if I'm comfortable with using the biometrics and then go straight into different applications. And then, then Tyler, it won't be SSO really, but I think... Um, or at least we won't have to rely on that solely, but we can make it easier, like reduced login, you know, not having to log in as often or making it easier to log in by just holding a phone over my face. Um, that That's a lot simpler. And so if even if I have to do it uh, a little more often, you know, just holding the phone up to my face or just, you know, I'm holding the phone anyway because I'm working with the application, I won't even notice the, the login process perhaps. So it will be convenient, but also secure. That is, but again, uh, I think the, the very... important part, sorry, just to jump in there, I just want to go back to the primary point, which is make that question irrelevant because all those things are right. sexy and cool. But if we if we go after new and shiny, um, we might end up building systems that are not uh, evolvable. No, I, I love the framework idea and I love having that that kind of standardized place where you're not having to rechange, reauthorize authenticate, re-engage all of the, the developers, the developer's time, the the expense that it takes to redeploy all that. That makes mm. a, a ton of sense and is seems like a great return on investment right there uh, for any uh, project that you're trying to deploy that on. 
Uh, yeah, I'm curious around the API security. You guys, does your platform handle API security and, and leveraging different um, integrations and technologies for that a- API security? That's like the new popular thing to try and look at is understanding and, and securing the APIs because we all know the front end stuff has gotten a little better and a little harder, but then the APIs are all still exposed and you have the same issues on, on the back end side. Yeah, so what we do is we issue the tokens uh, that are used to protect the APIs, um, but then it, it's some sort of enforcement point that's going to be calling the into the the microservice mesh or uh, some sort of, of gateway standing there at the edge that's going to be checking um, those tokens. And so there's multiple ways to do that. I mean, if it's a... Um, a JWT token, which has all of the values in it, it can do the authorization right there. Uh, we have integrations uh, with different providers like Apigee and Nginx and and whatnot to do that uh, right in line. But then there's also another approach, which uh, is called the phantom token approach, where the token itself doesn't contain any data. There's no PII in there. There's no values in there. It's just an opaque reference to the actual um information about that that user. So then as it passes through the gateway, that phantom token can be exchanged by from from an Nginx, from an Apigee, from a, um, an Azure gateway or, or AWS gateway, called over to Curity, convert that into a token that has all that information, that uh, buy value JSON web token, and then pass that back into the microservice, is into the mesh, uh, pass that around and use that. So all of that data about the user is used internally, but on the outside world, uh, all you ever see is that opaque reference to the uh, identity data. It's a great pattern because in the gateway, you can even cache that. The The opaque reference is a globally unique identifier, so you can cache it across all your microservices. So it doesn't matter which of your API clients uh, or which APIs the API client is consuming, it can it can use the, the same token if you have that sharing model. Uh, and so we have a lot of integrations, as you can see about on our website for, for different API gateways. But really, we, we do it either by uh, partnering rather than trying to, to provide a gateway ourselves. No, that's great. That's actually probably a, a better way to do that than, than having I think to so. cover down and do, and do it all. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. And I mean, verifying a token is such a different job than issuing a token. And and quite frankly, verifying a token is, is a trivial job compared to issuing one. I mean, figuring out who someone is, going in and sourcing claims from a relational database and call this web service over here and use this information from uh, the web authn key or, or from a social media that you logged in with, put all that together into a token, sign it, maybe add another token inside of that. It, it, it's a lot of uh, sophistication that goes into that. And so we just kind of say, okay, stop. That's where we and everything after that is the uh, between the API client and the, the API itself. And we can help with that conversion uh, if uh, a customer wants to deploy that fandom token approach. Um, but really, we see that as someone else's uh, deal to do. No, that makes a lot a lot of sense. And honestly, that's that's the part that having done this a lot and seen a lot of really bad tokens, that is mm-hmm. the part that most companies end up getting wrong is is the token side. So if you're taking that part and obscuring that from them and providing something that is done right and done well, then that just allows the developers to be able to focus on the things that they're actually good at and the things that they're actually trying to build. I think that's a, a much better approach for, for most companies. Yeah, I agree. We may have lost the context for this uh, at this point, but somebody somebody asked in the chat, hello, <laughs> how is that different from PBAP? And I'm not even familiar with that acronym so i 
I don't know if that makes sense to you at, at, at this point, Travis, but um, I'm trying to pop a few off the stack and remember what we were talking about. Um, but I, um, <laughs> All I find when a... I look it up is Bluetooth PBAP, Bluetooth phone book access profile. I don't think that fits with anything we were talking about. I think, so. it's, I think it's an API authentication key, right? I don't know. Mm. I don't, not I don't know. I think they are they talking about POAP? That's uh, that would be more along the lines of what we were talking about, but I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked for some more contact, but uh, sorry, yeah, audience that, member, whoever that was. <laughs> we'll answer that question another time. Understand it better. Uh, but Travis, this this has been great. Um, yeah, has been. You answered so many questions and and so well. Like I, I will always remember the the cash versus credit card um at, you know metaphor there that that's super mm-hmm. helpful but uh thanks for joining enterprise security weekly today and sharing all your your knowledge it was a pleasure thanks for having me all right make sure you visit securityweekly.com forward slash security to learn even more like i said their their website has a ton of stuff on it lots to dig into And stay tuned. When we come back, we've got a very special discussion for you. We've put together a panel of CISOs and InfoSec experts to discuss the impact of the Joe Sullivan case on security leadership. Don't leave the door open. Secure your APIs with the Curity Identity Server. Curity allows you to centralize identity management policies with a solution developed by an expert team using well-established standards. Curity facilitates scalable security for apps and websites by offering a unique combination of identity and access management with API security. Protect your users, secure apps and websites, manage API access. Start your free trial today at securityweekly.com forward slash Curity. The cybersecurity landscape is full of single solution providers, making it easy for unexpected cyber threats to sneak through the cracks. That's why Fortra is creating a stronger, simpler strategy for protection, one that increases your security maturity while decreasing the operational burden that comes with it. This is all possible thanks to Fortra's best-in-class portfolio and deep bench of expert problem solvers. Fortra's integrated, scalable solutions help customers face their toughest challenges with confidence. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Fortra. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. As Security Weekly listeners, we need to hear your voices. Leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts and submit a screenshot to our giveaway form for a chance to win a $100 gift card from Hacker Warehouse. This giveaway will be open until the end of the year. We appreciate your honest feedback so we can continue to make great content for our audience. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash giveaway. And we, we do need that feedback. Some of that feedback is uh, really old, you know, since before uh, me and Tyler were here. So, so me, me and Tyler and both the Tylers, we, we need. Yeah, well, actually, today, Adrian, it was all, all the old all the old feedback was all the negative stuff. All the new feedback's the good stuff. So we can just get more of that. 100%. <laughs> all right. So today we've got a special two-part discussion for you. Uh, yeah, I, I tried to put this together earlier. We we're just too booked up on the show, uh, but I'm happy that we can have it now. You know, maybe it's good that it's a month out, uh, you know, from when uh, the, the trial ended, uh, the Joe Sullivan trial. So um, glad we're having it all the same. We get a great uh, panel of folks here. And um, 
you know, so the, the idea today is, is kind of thinking about the, well, not only the trial itself and all the factors that go into that, but also the future. You know, what's the fallout from this? Is this going to be an anomaly in the future or is, it, or is this an important precedent? So we've got four special guests with us today to share their opinions on the matter. Uh, so Neil Yu is the CISO and head of research at Jupiter One. Uh, Tyler might know him. Tyler, uh, yeah, you know yeah, Sunil? We, we, yeah, we've met a couple times. Uh, <laughs> Sunil's the, the CISO at Jupiter One and actually a good friend of mine. And uh, yeah, just a really uh, smart person, the author of The Cyber Defense Matrix, which is a very popular book and uh, definitely somebody we should all get to know. Yeah, thank you for finishing the, uh, the intro there. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Sunil. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We also have Brian Markham, who is the uh, CISO at EAB. He's an executive hacker, advisor, and mentor who has been in the IT and security space for over 20 years. And I'm, I'm wondering, now that it's not an acronym, it's just the name of the company, how do, how do you say it? Do you say EAB or do you say, or do you pronounce it? Brian. Yeah, Adrian, thanks. Um, we do say EAB. And it's actually really funny because one of the first things they tell you when you start is uh, as part of the the corporate detachment from our former parent company, um, they actually own the rights to the acronym. So we actually say EAB it stands for nothing because we don't own that anymore. So yeah, we just say EAB. All right. All right. Uh, next, we've got Rob Graham. He's uh, been around in the industry for, for a little while. You might know him as Arata Rob on Twitter, or you might know him as the creator of Black Ice or Mass Scan. If you've uh, spent any time scanning the internet or securing enterprises in the early 2000s. He's not just a builder of tools, though. His ideas often spark some deep debates and discussions on Twitter and other places. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for having me. I don't know what else I can say other than that intro. Yeah, it was, uh, intros are tough, especially for folks who've done a lot of stuff. You know, I, I don't ever want somebody to read an intro for me. Yeah. I'm like, if, if they want to know more about me, they can just Google me. So I try and keep them pretty short, but yeah, you've, you've got some good stuff. Finally, uh, Rich Friedberg, the CISO for Live Oak Bank is with us today. Uh, Rich has led security and security teams at organizations like Blackbaud, Cap One, Fannie Mae, and was also the deputy director of the CERT Coordination Center. Coordination Center. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thank you, Adrian. Happy to be here. All right. So <clears throat> I thought to, to kick this off, uh, you know, I might go over just, just some of the facts on this. Um, it, it's taken a long time uh, for, for the results of this to come out. Uh, you know, I think uh, we first found out, uh, you know, about the breach in maybe uh, 2018, might have been 2017. But uh, you know, I've actually got the list of events. Yeah, 2018. But the, um, so a month after, so Joe Sullivan, you know, first of all, his background uh, was as a lawyer. I didn't realize that for a long time until I started digging into this, but he was the general counsel for Facebook and laterally moved from general counsel to CISO at Facebook. Uh, and then immediately after that role, he joined Uber as their uh, CSO. He's always had a CS, uh, CSO role, not a CISO role. Uh, so for, for you know, folks that, that 
read into that. But um, you know, the the short of it is that coming right out of testifying in front of the FTC for a previous breach that happened, I think, in 2014, uh, it was literally a week later he found out about this new breach. Um, you know, took, took some measures to, you know, not let it go public, uh, which which we'll we'll dive into some of the some of the details of that. But the um, um, yeah, ten days after his FTC testimony, he finds out Uber got hacked again. Um, you know, kept it uh, somewhat quiet within Uber. I think one of the assumptions also I had, you know, that that changed after some of the details of this came out. Uh, and it's important, you know, that there are some details we don't have. Like we, we don't have the transcript from the court. Uh, sent thing hasn't happened yet, so we don't have those details. But, um, you know, we, we do know that it wasn't shared widely within uh, Uber. So, you know, the original assumption was everybody inside Uber knows this was a collective decision. You know, general counsel, inside counsel had to know. Uh, didn't turn out to be the case. You know, so that uh, personally, that, that changed a lot of my opinions on the case. You know, but still, it's a very complex. And so the attackers that originally uh, got the data and, uh, you know, were, were paid through uh, a bug bounty platform. Uh, to keep that stuff quiet, went on to hit another company and got caught after that and then gave up Uber and said, uh, yeah, I don't know how that comes out with the with the attackers talking to authorities after they got, uh, uh, after they got caught. But uh, that's how we know about this breach was from the attackers themselves. You know, so that, that started this whole thing where uh, starting in 2018, you know, eventually, uh, you know, Charges are pressed, and we have the jury trial this year. And that brings us up to current time where I think it was October 5th, uh, the jury read out the uh, you know their decision, and we haven't seen sentencing yet. But the two counts are obstruction of justice, which is up to five years in jail, and concealing of felony, which is up to three years. I don't think anybody expects uh, him to have the, the full amount thrown at him, but we don't know. Hasn't happened. No sense. Now, has the FTC so, always taken a, a breach notification stance? Like thinking back to 2018 and kind of where we were with the requirements for notification, that has substantially changed uh, in, in today's stance. And the FTC, I know that they had the health breach notification back in 2018, but prior to that, like, I'm trying to remember the the actual laws and rules around what you had to notify the FTC of for breaches, especially in 2018. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, FTC is way more involved than, than they used to be. I, I just spent a couple of hours the other day digging through everything on, on the FTC's uh, site. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, this is um, so. It's actually not the FTC, you know, that that I think was behind this. It was uh, 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 Northern California uh, Attorney General Office okay. that that uh, that brought this case. That would make a lot more sense. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so so you know, jumping into this, 
you know, maybe starting with the with the CISOs here. I'm trying not to start with too much of a uh, you know <laughs> too much of a, a of a trolling question, but did did Joe do anything wrong here? Yeah, Adrian. I mean, I, I don't mind starting. Uh, I mean, I think that he he made some mistakes for sure. I mean, if you read through it, um, as I have, I have a lot of questions. Um, having been through some incidents, one of the things that I always lean on, and it helps me because I'm not a lawyer. I know Joe has a legal background, but I don't have an understanding of the law like our general counsel does, like our outside counsel does. So as a result on the, of that, I really rely on them and I partner with them to understand what is required, what am I required to do, and then I provide information to them so that we can manage the incident together. And they, of course, expect me to manage all the technical details of the of the incident response. Uh, and I, I feel like here there were some mistakes that happened with respect to just the, the decisions that were being made. I, I read that the CEO, Travis Kalanick, actually signed off on something. On the, on the decision to to not notify. And I'm just wondering if there's all these paper trails, all these receipts, CEO was on board, GC was on board. Why did Joe, why was Joe the one holding the bag? But then I read the details about how he told people that he didn't want to let it out, how when the new CEO came in, he didn't tell the new CEO all the details. And I think it's pretty clear that some mistakes were were made in the way that this was handled by him. So let, let me jump in here very quickly, and I would love to ask that same question um, to both Rob and Sunil as well. Um, you know, did did Joe Joe do anything wrong in your eyes? Do you do you differ in your response? But I also want to ask a follow on question um, to the comment that was just made. We aren't lawyers. I'm not a lawyer. Joe's a lawyer. Do you think maybe in this particular case, the fact that he was a lawyer caused more difficulties for him than if he hadn't been? Now, what I mean by that is, had he not been a lawyer, would he have relied more heavily on the legal team to make calls, to make the legal risk decisions instead of taking much of it onto himself, which put himself at greater risk? Um, and I so I, I know I asked a couple questions in there. Let's start with the did, you, did Joe do anything wrong comment from maybe Sunil first and then over to Rob. Um, and then let's go back and, and kind of double check on that legal question I had. Right. So I think in the context of, uh, we can easily answer the question of, did he do something wrong in the context of the, the set of actions at the very end? But I think, Tyler, what you're pointing to is what led to those decisions that resulted in the kind of actions that he may have taken towards the end. Uh, one other data point that uh, that Adrian left may have left out uh, in his bio was he was also a former federal prosecutor, right? So a uh, former U.S. attorney, um, um, assistant U.S. attorney, I think. So uh, there, there's an, a perspective that you would have that says, well, I, I think I know what I'm doing if, <laughs> uh, right. if I'm a lawyer, I'm a former uh, prosecutor, um, and a perspective of, I think I should know what might get me in trouble and what might not, right? And so <clears throat> this, this sort of perspective of, um, uh, of having somebody who has a deep legal background, prosecutor background, uh, could that have been his, um, his failure point, his error, if, if you will, that really led to this chain of events that uh, you know, had the unfortunate outcome that we have here? Yeah, I think it was even uh, the, the way, same. I think the answer is yes. Yeah. 
I think it was even the same office, right? Like, like the office that mm-hmm. prosecuted him was yes. the office he worked. That's right. Which yeah. makes in, this in many ways it's more sort of like you should have known better, bizarre. right? You should have known better. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think something that we shouldn't leave out here is is kind of the, the nature of um, uh, Uber at the time, right? Like this is peak Uber. This is Uber. You know, Travis doing. You know, some some arguably sketchy sketchy stuff. Stories are coming out about what it's like to be in the office there. This is a company founded on breaking laws. Uber was illegal in most of the places that they started that service. And the business model was, we're going to get this so popular, they're going to be forced to change the laws and, and allow Uber to be a thing, right? And uh, so I, I, I think that kind of, you know, the, the culture there, you know, and, and uh, you know, maybe understanding, having read a little bit about Travis Kalanick, I, I think kind of helps me understand like the, the pressure and the expectations, uh, you know, that Joe might have had on. I think there's two questions here and you kind of highlight that of did he do something illegal versus do something wrong? So, you know, Uber was, you know, the philosophy that you describe is we're going to do something that's illegal, but right. And so kind of what we're discussing here is two separate questions is did Joel Sullivan do anything morally wrong or did he do something that violated the law or violated FTC's uh, consent agreement? And I think those are two separate questions. Uh, and CISO should be asking themselves, if they see themselves in the same position, which things should they be doing that are wrong and which things should they, which things will, will fall, uh, cause them to fall afoul of the law or FTC regulations? And with that said, uh, I would think that there, there is one thing that I think he did that is morally wrong. It's hard to say because we don't have the transcript. We only have the one-sided view of what the prosecutors get, give us describing his actions. We don't see the, his other side, the, the court testimony that might excuse some of them. But one thing that seems clear is that he, in his agreement with the hackers, he said, you know, those hackers have to write an agreement that they stole no data. Yes, they broke in, but they have to agree that they stole no data. Basically, he forced them to sign an agreement to lie in order to get their $100,000 payout. And I, I think that is morally wrong, that um, of the many things that he's been doing, they all have, I can see, excuses for, like, uh, of course, we don't want the entire company to know about this until we're prepared to, to announce the fact of, of this hack. So, of course, you don't want your, your security organization to, to leak information. Uh, but uh, in this case, I think it is, it's, it's clearly wrong to say, hey, we're going to lie about it and then force other people to lie about it. That is something I think that if it's legal or not illegal, it's not the question. Is like, do you want to be a liar? Do you want to be someone who who promotes lies like that. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's so not just a question of, did he do anything wrong or illegal? So I've seen a lot of people with the take that, you know, okay, yes, he did, you know, something illegal. He did something wrong, you know, but they're not cool with the fact that the whole company, you know, the rest of the company, like, you know, some parts of that company should have been culpable in this and should have had to do more than pay a $50,000 fine, which is, 
you know, I, I think they settled, uh, just paid that fine and nothing else, no charges for anybody else there. You know, it's just uh, going to hang out the, the old CISO for, for 100% of the blame. So a lot of people had that problem with it. And then, you know, it seemed like a lot of folks were worried about the, the precedence, uh, you know, that, that some of this would, would set uh, versus the expectations uh, a lot of leadership has under CISO. So I think it'd be interesting to talk about that a little, maybe Rich, um, Rich, uh, you know, looking at the details of this case, is this something where, you know, if, if you're comfortable with your, your ethical stance, you know, and the decisions you'd make uh, in, in the same situation, you know, are, are you comfortable with that? Or, you know, are you worried about a situation where, you know, it's kind of on the edge where your, your company uh, expects you to do something that you're, you know, afraid will come back? Good questions. I, I think, as you mentioned earlier, since we don't have the transcript yet, I think it's hard to piece some of this together. But I know for me, when I first read read the story, like, I mean, Joe, Joe spent his career prosecuting criminals, running security at large enterprises, right? He's he's focused on on defense. He's done a lot of good for the industry, right? There there are certainly aspects of this that I think still haven't haven't kind of fit together. But what, one of the big things that resonated as I read it is. If, if Travis was engaged, CEO approved the course of action, why is this all falling on Joe, right? I think that's hard to digest and, and back to some of the earlier conversations, right? Is this kind of a standard thing that we should all be worried about as CISOs or is this a bit of an anomaly? Um, and I think some of these complexities around was he acting in a legal capacity? How much did legal know? What was their org structure like? What was the governance structure like? We, we just don't know those answers. Um, you know, but I, I think about what that means for CISOs and especially comparing it to what we saw with the testimony from Mudge about Twitter. Right? I think it puts CISOs in an interesting position, right? Let, let's say everything is is correct from a governance structure, right? You've got your, your governance structure where you're engaging legal, legal making the determination that it's a breach. What does the CISO do if they disagree? Right. Do they write a dissenting opinion? Do they do they whistleblow? Do they you know fall in and align that it's a corporate decision and and follow follow that that course of action? You know, what, one of the things I would love to understand is what what some of that dynamic may have been you know b- behind the scenes between Travis and and Joe. And it'll be interesting, I think, to to see how that comes out over time. But I think th- those sorts of dynamics, I think, will have larger ramifications on the industry over time. Yeah, and I'm looking Rich, forward I'm gonna... to both the. The, the book and the Hulu special. I'm looking forward to both. Sorry, Travis, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait. So, Rich, Rich, let me follow up on that question a little bit then and ask you, you know, because we don't know those details, right? And and the only people that know those details are the people that are inside the case at this point because it hasn't been published and the, and the transcripts aren't out there. Does that information change how you react or feel on a daily basis as a CISO as an organ- at an organization today? Meaning if if the data comes out that, he wasn't just, you know, acting of his own volition and making making calls without looping in the correct people and that he was indeed looping in the correct people throughout that business. And yet he was the one that t- took the fall. Does that change how you feel or not necessarily you in particular? I don't want to make this a pointed question, but CISOs in a generalized sense should feel about the security and safety of the position that they're in, given the potential for breach. Does it change how you feel on a day to day basis? 
So, so my answer, I, I think it depends on what we, we see in those details, but it absolutely does have the potential too, right? And I think, you know, there, there's certainly this evolution of the importance of the CISA role, how it's viewed in terms of, you know, being a true officer of the company, not whether or not it's actually covered under directors and officers insurance. Um, but I, I think, yeah, in terms of how I digest it and think about the day-to-day, right, it would certainly make me think harder about the companies in which I would be willing to accept a CISO position, right? Is the right governance structure there? Is the right support there from the board, from the GC to have the partnership to work through these sorts of decisions as a corporate decision and not as a CISO decision decision alone? Um, and I, I think that will be a differentiator around kind of the the evolution of, of the marketplace for where, where CISOs are really, really engaged and supported. Yeah, and and one me... of the other places where we uh, we wanted to where we see so started looking deeper into our own policies and processes was who actually reports the breach, because in uh, if it's a legal matter, the CISO shouldn't be doing the reporting. It should be uh, our GC, right? Um, so I think that's something that we a lot of us went through and said, okay, um, let's make sure that our IR policies and procedures actually reflect that. Well, and Travis, you had a question earlier about like, did Joe having that legal background maybe negatively impact him or bring him to a place where maybe he thought he had it all taken care of? Like, that's mm-hmm. certainly possible. I mean, we don't know for sure, but, you know, just based on what, you know, Sunil just said, it's a lot easier when you don't have that legal background to just say, not my call, GC, you make the call, tell me what I need to do to support that decision. Um, you know, not being qualified allows you to do that. Being qualified might make it a little bit more, might make it muckier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was, was definitely, that was definitely a little bit of a takeaway that I got out of that discussion too. And let, let me loop in, uh, let me loop in Rob on this, on this next question. So kind of, um, following along that vein as a CISO, if you were to take a new job and move, let's say Uber came to you and said, Hey, Rob, we want you to take the job. What do you look at differently now going into that situation? Do you have to look at your own personal insurance, your own personal coverage, your own personal risk tolerance levels? Like, does that change at all? Well, I think there's a certain set of companies like Uber, Facebook, Twitter, that um, you're in danger because you're so hated in the press. You're so hated everywhere that um, prosecutors or the FTC looking to make a name for themselves are going after these two large organizations, these large famous organizations. So there's an aspect of the job that as a big prominent tech leader that you're in more over your head. But at the same time, I think that every CISO has the opportunity to to mold, to to fit the the requirement of the job to, to themselves. I mean, if you if you walk in and say, okay, what about Uber? It's, you know, should I be afraid of? But at the same time, this opportunity, what can I create at Uber? Um, if if I feel that I'm in jeopardy, I need to address that and make that happen. And I think a, that a CISO does have a lot of uh, power to make that happen. For example, saying very clearly at the start, okay, breach notifications are the general counsel's job, and all I have to do is notify general counsel, and then I'm I'm clear which it sounds like he, he didn't do. Adrian, you on mute, buddy? 
Did you have a question? No, no, no. I, 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 I thought I thought you were going to have a follow up, so I was just uh, I was going to be quiet. No, there. see, that's always the hard part yeah. about doing these shows live is who's who's yeah. following up when. You take it, Adrian. Ask the next question. So I, I mean, just to throw some some fire on the uh, Travis Kalanick uh, bit here, like I went, I was like, okay, what kind of guy is? This? I, w- I looked at his previous uh, startups, and he had a startup around the same time as the dot-com bubble and Napster and all that. And he had kind of uh, a Napster-ish type company called Scour that went under because they get hit with a $250 billion copyright infringement lawsuit. And um, the next startup, uh, Red Swoosh, was nearly destroyed by tax fraud and failing to pay employees until uh, Mark Cuban failed. So just kind of a, a baffling you know, background here where almost every business model is kind of highlighted by doing illegal things. And it just, it, you know, so I guess the question is, you know, and not all CISOs are getting away with this. We just saw uh, Drizzle CISO just got hit by the FTC. Well, it's, it's not final for another couple of weeks, but basically they, they're saying, hey, you need to do these, uh, you're required to do these uh, for the next 20 years, regardless of what company uh, you're working at, you know, you now have kind of these uh, security requirements and these requirements handling of data. So certainly not every CISO's uh, getting away with this kind of stuff. But it, does it feel like he kind of got away with this? Should he have had, uh, you know, some legal culpability in this? And maybe uh, throw that. To, yeah, whoever wants to answer that. Go ahead. I feel pretty passionately. I, I'm shocked that he has not had more more culpability. Like it, in my mind, the fact that Joe had engaged Travis, Travis approved it, right, means it was more of a corporate decision than than Joe's alone. At least in terms of how it was handled through through the bug bounty program, and you know, e- even with right, absent some of the the details from the transcript, right, if some of the reporting we've seen that the GC may not have been you know directly involved, again that doesn't quite comprehend to me how that would only be on Joe. Travis very well could have pulled in the rest of his directs, pulled in the GC to talk about kind of the the right way to approach it. So in my mind, th- those dynamics really make it much more of a, a corporate issue. Does anyone else want to add any color to that, to that piece of the conversation? Does anyone uh, disagree or agree? Well, he may not have informed Joe of, of everything. And that's what he was accused of, at least for the follow-on CEO, is that he did not tell the CEO the full scope of the problem. The complexity of this thing is is absolutely mind-boggling when you take into account, you know, the background people that were involved, the multi um, the multi-step uh, disclosure issues. Um, it's extremely complex, so it's very difficult to distill it down into a, a one-to-one mapping to like today's CISO should do X to not to not run into this problem. But at the same time, I think there's significant impacts at the highest level with regard to like trends, macro trends. One of the ones I want to press on, and it's not a, a commonly pressed trend, or maybe it is, I don't know, I don't read all the news, um, is I want to talk a little bit about how this impacts um bug bounty programs, right? Because he paid this out and I might have the data wrong. And Adrian, if I missed the, if I missed the data points here, please correct me. I believe he paid the the first uh, hack or the second hack out uh, via a bug bounty payout. Um, Does this change at all how bug bounties work or will be perceived 
by large organizations. They bug bounties have always run kind of right along the edge of of gray area of whether it's, you know, a ransom extortion or a true bug bounty kind of play, right? And it always comes down to how much you you publicize it and and kind of set the rules of engagement ahead of time, et cetera. Um, does this change anything in that site? Do you think this will hurt the bug bounty market or players at all? Uh, let's start with that. Yeah. Let's go ahead and start with Rob on that one because I know he'll have a great comment and then we can go from there. I'll, I'll We'll go pick somebody else after that. Yeah, I don't think this has anything to do with bug bounties. I mean, he clearly tried to distort the idea of a bug bounty, but um, I, I think that it's sort of a red herring. Everyone's focused on this issue, but I think it's 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 meaningless. Brian, did, you, I did I hear your is, first? Uh, Sunil, go ahead. Uh, sorry, the way I described it is he used a left of boom tool to solve a right of boom problem. <laughs> can, can you that explain was, what that means for the audience? So, yeah, so... Um, Left of boom is something that you do before something bad happens. So boom is some negative event. And a bug bounty, you run uh, as a way to discover uh, vulnerabilities in your app and vulnerabilities in your environment before anything bad happens. Um, a write a boom event is something bad has happened. And now you have to um, find that bad event and respond accordingly. Well, um, the whole notion of using a left of boom tool, bug bounty, to solve a right of boom problem is like saying, I'm going to use AV to uh, deal with ransomware, which for anyone who's ever had to deal with it, you know that that's not going to help you at all. It's the wrong tool for the job. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, in this case, it uh, had other consequences beyond that. So, so uh, I want to. I'll get to Rich and Brian on that same question, but uh, I want to ask you then, Sunil. Does is that the difference in bug bounties between, you know, what is a, a an acceptable bug bounty or an ethical bug bounty model and an extortion or ransomware payout? Is that the difference, the left or or right of boom scenario? Oh, well, and I think to Rob's point earlier, that is ultimately what uh, created the issue, the moral issue, right? Saying, hey, I want you to claim as if um, it was a left of boom. Um, type of activity where uh, the the researchers didn't actually create a boom, um, but unfortunately, right. that's actually what did happen, right? Yeah, it's I mean, bug bounty, this, this not breach bounty, right? Yeah, this shouldn't be an issue for most reputable bug bounty companies. And again, this isn't even a bug bounty issue, right? They were trying to leverage a brokerage so that they had a line item that matched into something that was non plausible or admittable. Uh, that did not lead to the breach, right? So you're just trying to put a bug bounty line item and cover up a, a funding movage. This is a money laundering problem more than it is a bug bounty. They just happened to pick bug bounty. They could have picked a number of different uses. They could have done a pen test and paid out a pen test company. We'd be talking about pen test issues. So I think it is it is less about the the market in which they picked and brokerage, which they're trying to use in order to cover up a money laundering and, and money line item issue. Wow, that that's that's a very interesting take. Rich, Brian, do you guys have any color you want to provide on the bug bounty red herring as we're, as we're potentially describing it? I, I completely agree. I, mean, I, I agree with the previous comment that bug bounties will often kind of walk that gray line, right? What happens if a, if a researcher incidentally does access data is, is they find some sort of vulnerability. But it's in a kind of controlled, controlled function, right? There's reportability. There's NDAs in place in advance within within those communities. Um, so I, I agree with with Sunil. It's, it was the you know, perhaps not the right tool for for that solution. And I do think it's a bit of a red herring. 
right? The, the core fundamental question was, was it a breach or not? Was it an extortion attempt or, or was it, or was it not? And those are, those are independent of whether or not it's the, you know, considered part of a bug bounty program. Yeah. I think because the, the hackers went to the extortion route pretty early on, you know, at least based on the, what was released, um, by the prosecution, um, tells me right away that bug bounty, this was not the right avenue. It was not a, a bug bounty. Shouldn't have been that way, and it is a red herring. I, I I really agree with what with what Rob said. Robin, what Rich said. I think the other thing we have to think about, though, too, is is this is not an uncommon practice, right? Like I've worked several IR incidents where, in order to pay out ransomware, they have a we don't negotiate with terrorists. So you're working with the government, the local uh, law enforcement. They don't negotiate with terrorists, but they have to pay that ransom. So they, in order for cyber insurance to pay that out, they will use a brokerage. And pay that ransom. So this is not outside of the full characteristics of dealing with a ransomware through a brokerage company where you're not the one paying a fee. The brokerage company is buying the Bitcoin, paying the ransomware, and then they're charging it as a line item as part of their consultancy fee for the cyber insurance. So I still don't think this is outside of the realm of creativity for negotiating with something like a ransomware gang. I think this just was used in the wrong context. And Without all the details, this still becomes such a, a a bad situation for all kinds of conjecture. And I think that's where the entire industry is sitting. Like from the conjecture, what do we actually do with this? Yeah, I think on, on, on that one, I think that that's really interesting. It's just that from, from my perspective, this was an incident right from jump. And when there is an incident, what your insurance company tells you to do is to alert them immediately, right? Because you might need assistance. And granted, the companies that I've worked have been smaller than Uber, but I still think that it I still think that it applies. You bring in these partners early on in the process. I don't know how much of that happened here, but if you're going to bring in a negotiator, if you're going to bring in outside forensics, you you manage all of that through counsel and your insurance company. You don't try and negotiate with the adversary on your own. Um, it just doesn't appear that any of that happened. It doesn't look like it was ever really handled as a security incident, other than the fact that Joe asked his team to start investigating the people that were behind this. That's the only thing based on what's been disclosed that I've read that makes it look like they were actually managing it as an incident as opposed to a hush payment. And is that is that even a reasonable request? Like I've never seen and I'm not a CISO and I've never been a CISO, but I've never seen a security organization that has, hey, this group is dedicated to researching individuals out in the real world. Like, is that even a reasonable request to ask of your team as a CISO? I would not go anywhere near that. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like it's a little bit out of ethical bounds in isolation of itself to say, hey, we think, you know, and I don't know the attackers names. I forget what their names were, but we think person A and person B have done something here. We need to go find their background, research them, figure out if, you know, that just seems like dirty to begin with. Sunil, uh, um, Rob, uh, you guys have any comment on that? I've had experience with a lot of companies who do this. There's a lot of open source intelligence tools that can um, get you a long way there. Uh, for example, tracking Bitcoin often gets you to the source of who, who's, who's extorting you. So it, I think it depends upon the sorts of talents the team might have. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I think I've got a strategy here that can help us find the identities of our hackers, that the someone like Joe Sullivan will say, hey, yeah, let, let's, let's give it a whirl. Let's, let's try it. 
So it's not so much that he decided and, you know, carefully planned this out so much as it's something that the team decided, depending upon what skills they had. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, if I have an ability to research and find the actual adversary and actually work with them to, uh, to remove the, like to get to, to have the data actually purged from their environment, I will do that. Right now, that this is not talking to any, any investigations or you know lying to investigators or not reporting whatever. But my point is ultimately, if I have an opportunity to to uh, work with an attacker to to actually um, uh, arrive at some sort of settlement that actually ends up securing the data again, then yes, I would want to do that. But it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know security organizations, security team organizations as well as you all do. Correct me if I'm wrong. We don't hire for that role. We don't we don't generally hire in private investigator style investigations people. But what you're saying is if you had the skill set, you think it's within scope of an organization. But I would imagine that the majority of, of security organizations don't have that skill set. Is that correct? That would be a fair statement. I, we're, yeah, we're talking larger organizations that do actually sure. have the resources to do that. And there are some threat intelligence type of organizations that will go um, to that step if you if you contract out for them as well. And I also think there's a difference between using OSINT, using Threat Intel, using your team's internal capabilities, but not as a plan A. Like maybe it's a plan B, but I really would have worked closer with law enforcement and my partners to bring this to a good conclusion for my company rather than taking it upon myself to track these guys down. I just don't think that that's a great, a great plan A tactic. I love, I also I love think back to, go ahead, Rich. I'm oh, sorry. I was back, back to like Sunil's example of left and right of boom too. I think you see larger enterprises use things like threat intelligence, like left, left of boom, right? What do we know about adversaries that may be coming after us, right? If they're coming from an IP address or their other related IP addresses, right? And trying to kind of profile adversaries from that standpoint, completely agree with, with Sunil's pre- previous comments, like from a negotiation standpoint, right? Leveraging you know, one of these firms that knows the threat actor groups and can kind of help, you know, ground, you know, what reasonable negotiations look like, expectations for, you know, how the adversary is going to respond to certain tactics, like super, super helpful. Um, but I, I certainly feel like af- after all of that, like going after attribution certainly feels kind of outside of the bounds of a typical security organization, more the realm of, of law enforcement, right, to go after attribution and prosecution. And I think there are working groups and there are many organizations that, that do this well and do this right. Like you look at Fortune 1 or Fortune you know, 1 through 5, their capability and their um, teams that are doing this attribution, this left of boom work, have right of boom where they're getting denial of service or they're getting uh, C2, something landed successfully. They've shut it down very quickly as part of their remediation. They also go and work with someone like Microsoft or a cloud provider, DigitalOcean. And link all the credit cards or Bitcoin addresses that were leveraged to stand up that infrastructure, and they shut every, all the rest of the infrastructure down so that that actor no longer is acting, and they can't go after uh, more footholds. So I think that there are proactive and teams that do this very well, and, and sometimes even do the attribution of going and hunting them down. You look at some of the IRS stuff with the the wallet and chain chain analysis. Like you can get very proactive after boom. But you are right. Like there is a very big distinction on the threat intelligence used uh, prior to an incident, and then what attribution and steps you can legally take 
that make a difference. But again, at the end of the day, we're still dealing with actors doing illegal stuff. So I think uh, strategically with the right partners and working with companies that are doing this well on teams that are doing this well can be very effective to do a little bit more active and offensive, uh, offensively natured uh, reactions to some of this. Uber did successfully it. find out the identities of those of those hackers. So that tells me that they had the capabilities in-house to do so. Or, or they had outsourced uh, contract work helping. Yeah. I, I love where this is going because I have kind of a, a spicy question to ask. Um, yeah, I was, I was never a CISO either. I was very close to that role. And I was a chief incident handler for uh, very large uh, uh, financial companies uh, for, for a good chunk, about five years of my career. And I know there's a lot of stuff. There, there's a lot of, oh, if you only knew the kind of cases <laughs> like that we dealt with that never, uh, you know, fell into public eye. Of course, a lot of my background is before we had regulation, before we had, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff was uh, required to be legally required to be shared. But, um, but I do wonder how much of an iceberg effect that we have here on, like, and I don't want any of you to divulge, you know, anything that could get you in trouble or anything. But, um, you know, how how many CISOs saw this come out and think, oh, man, if people only knew, you know, all the other stuff that that never hit the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the press, the, the headline. How much of an effect is And Sunil, I'll start with you because you work for a large financial institution. I, I suspect you've talked to a lot of CISOs in your career as well. So. You know, I guess it's kind of the question I wrote down here is, is it common for CISOs to be expected to hide breaches, uh, you know, or is, you know, uh, or is this really more of an anomaly? So uh, I don't know if it's an anomaly because of the drizzle case that you pointed out earlier. It's creating this additional pressure now to say, um, what is a CISO actually responsible for? And it seems like... Um, well, so what are we responsible for? We have a set of security policies and procedures and we attest uh, our conformance to that. And uh, we can we attest that conformance to our, our um, the people who buy our services, right? And so if now I'm rep- misrepresenting that, um, how am I as a CISO liable? Well, we're starting to see, uh, let's say for example, DOD tightening the screws on that saying, we now are expecting you to adhere to CMMC, and if you um, wrongly attest to your status associated with CMMC, you are now held liable. Um, and, and so I, th- I think it's getting. This is this is not a one-off thing. It's going to uh, grow in terms of the the pressure that we're going to uh, see here. But one thing that I would offer as a way to think about this and to understand what should we, we truly be rely- uh, liable for versus not liable for. Um, I, I've made an argument that um, in the world of cybersecurity, we should split up the type of responsibilities that we have uh, into two major buckets. One is what I would call cyber safety, and the other is what we call cybersecurity. <laughs> okay. Now, mm-hmm. if you're not sure what the terms mean, uh, it's easy to put the word like it's easier to understand if you put the word food in front of it. So, what is food safety? It's things like hygiene compliance, um, inspections, best practices. There are things like food security, 
which are like um, you know baby formula and Ukrainian wheat. And if yeah, you consider those, that, yeah, and, and let's let's take another example: airplane safety versus airplane security. If I'm an engineer trying to make a really really safe airplane, but some hijacker takes that airplane and crashes it into a building, am I liable for that? Okay. When you have a malicious actor coming in, specifically circumventing uh, technical controls, is that something that I should be liable for? Now, if I'm practicing good cyber safety, or rather, I should say, if I fail to practice good cyber safety, yes, maybe you should hold me liable for that. But if an actor, a very sophisticated actor, or even not even sophisticated, but you know, some sophisticated actor comes in and, and harms your environment, why... Uh, how can I, why should I be liable when someone, uh, I try to practice good safety uh, protocols, but someone comes in and violates the security aspect of it? Yeah, no, that, that's a really important distinction, I think, uh, Sunil. And um, yeah, I, th I think we're going to take a quick break here and uh, we'll come right back with the second part of this. But uh, just hang on. We're gonna we're gonna break, uh, go through uh, some some ads, and be right back with. Attacks can't be prevented, but they can be stopped. Modern cyber attackers have already made it inside your network, but you have the upper hand. Find and eradicate threats with ExtraHop network detection and response, and shut them out before real damage is done. Learn the advanced techniques attackers are using and how ExtraHop stops them with a live attack simulation. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop. That's extra H-O-P. Managing and protecting the world's grueling number of endpoints, enabling Tanium's customers to see, control, and protect every endpoint everywhere. Tanium's mission is to provide certainty in uncertain times with the industry's only converged endpoint management. Trusted by the U.S. military and the majority of the Fortune 100, Tanium helps manage and protect nearly 30 million endpoints. Tanium, the power of certainty. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more. When it comes to cybersecurity, the biggest threats are the ones you never see coming. SecureWorks detects and responds to cyber attackers' ever-changing tactics. We come armed with Tagus, a security analytics platform designed to recognize attacks and stop them before they do harm. SecureWorks, defending every corner of cyberspace. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash SecureWorks. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platform. And we're back for the second part of our discussion on the Joe Sullivan case, Anomaly or Precedent. We have Sunil Yu, Brian Markham, Rob Graham, and Rich Friedberg as our guests with, here with us today. And we're going to jump right back in. And also my uh, co-hosts, uh, Tyler Robinson and Tyler Shields are here along with so a lot of folks here. Uh, we're we're going to try and uh, <laughs> direct the traffic as, as best we can uh, with, with people answering questions. But um, to kick back off, I, I wanted to kind of reiterate one of my questions here. This is something that's used to be clear to me, but isn't anymore because I've been outside of the enterprise for so long now. But I'm trying to get a, um, 
you know, feeling around whether or not it's it's how common it is for breaches to go public versus not public, how blurry that line is. You know, if the Joe Sullivan case is kind of like the tip of an iceberg of something that maybe happens all the time, you know, and companies get away with it, or is it more of a um, more of a you, you know we we don't know if we have to report this or not. So so Rob, I I want to go to you first. Yeah, I think my last big experience with the breach was 2017 with a big company, and they chose not to report it. And the reason was was because they found the hacker prowling around their systems, but had no indication that they had ever accessed any any customer data, any data that would, would bring them afoul of that. And there was a big discussion of should we disclose, should we not disclose, and in the end, they they chose not to. So. Um, so this does happen, and I think it's one of those like seven uh, layers or seven stages of denial that a lot of companies, when things happen, like breaches of vulnerabilities, they go through a process where they convince themselves that it's not as big a problem as maybe outsiders might think. Now, this doesn't apply to the Joe Sullivan case where the hackers clearly took the data, but um, I, I think... It, it, it does still happen. You know, back in the early days, it happened all the time, but these days with regulations, it probably happens less, but still, I think it happens. And I wonder, uh, you know, maybe I can jump to you, Rich. You, you know, do you see or hear about, you know, folks like, uh, you know, there's certain companies you don't want to go to because, you know, they have a reputation for expecting their CISOs to do things that those CISOs aren't comfortable with. You know, is that something that's fairly common? Because I, I do feel like the CISO role and what should be expected of the CISO is still very much up in the air and, and not uh, engraved. It's a good question. I, I think there's a lot of nuance in there, right? I think stepping back at the macro level is underreporting a problem in the industry. I, I think so. Um, it's certainly gotten better as time has evolved, but the, the data breach notification laws are a twisted, complex web. I mean, e even after you know, most organizations involve GC, you've got to go to you know, outside counsel to really help kind of navigate all those nuances of what should be reportable and, and what's not. But I, I think there's, you know, there's almost some kind of ethical or moral or cultural distinctions around like company values and how you make some of those decisions. Right. So let's say, you know, uh, an incident happens where there is some level of data access. Right. You may not legally be obligated to report that as a breach, but is that something you should notify your customers or those constituents about? Right. I think those are interesting things for organizations to, to pressure test internally as they're flushing out incident response tabletops and, and drills. And I, I know as I think about our vendor ecosystem, if a vendor notifies me of a security incident that they've had, and I look at it and realize that they probably didn't have to tell me about it the way the contract is written. I, I actually appreciate the, the transparency, but I don't think that's common across the board, right? So I do think organizations are hesitant because there could be business implications or you know, revenue implications for them over notifying beyond what they legally must. So does that result in an under notification problem? Meaning, um, hey, we broke in or somebody broke in, they connected to six different things, moved laterally, um, we don't see any evidence that they got at any data that's personal. Therefore, we're not going to report it. Like, you know, I think this is such a gray area that, you know, legally, you, if you didn't have to report it, why would you ever from a business vantage point? Right. You wouldn't. But at the same time, 
you run the risk of if you're wrong, right? If you're wrong, it's such a massive problem. And so you, where do you draw that line as a CISO? How do you practice for that line? And I, I agree, it comes from cultural background, cultural history. Um, so is this, you mentioned tabletop exercises, you mentioned inside council. Is this things that you should just practice for and say, this is where we're going to draw the line and how we will approach it culturally and kind of, I guess, pre-exercise your experience so that you know how to do it in the event that it occurs? So I think uh, from a cultural standpoint, and maybe maybe even from a moral standpoint, as Rich was uh, alluding to, uh, this is where I, I use that distinction between safety and security to, to help guide that decision. If it's a, uh, it typically, if an organization has a safety incident of some sort, you actually want to report that widely. We want people to know about it because you don't want that to happen again, right? If there's a security incident, that's actually typically kept hush hush. So when we think about um, what is it that we want to broadcast out to the rest of the world, well, we, we start asking people to report your security incidents. And you're like, are you kidding me? Why would I want to do that? However, if you're asking me to report out safety incidents, then I'm saying, you know what? There's a, there is an obligation that we should have to each other to say, how can I help you avoid that safety incident within your own organization? So it, I think it's a, it's a framing thing. And for me, it helps me think through it and say, if it's a safety incident, then there's usually some sort of postmortem or something that uh, that we've learned from that says, how we, how do we avoid this in the future? There could be no breach involved, right? It's just, there's something that we could have done better um, that other people can learn from. And I, I, I classify that as a safety incident. And, and thinking that in that sort of way, it helps us understand uh, what we should be sharing broadly versus what we may want to you know, keep closer hold. Mute, Adrian. Hmm. I must have been coughing or something like that. Sorry. Um, forgot that I muted. Yeah, so something I want to get some uh, some thoughts on here. Um, Rich mentioned transparency, you know, and, and that's something that's, you know, certainly in a lot of public cases, we've seen companies who are very transparent about their breaches, you know, share a lot of details. And at least from from the outside perspective, it seems like that earns them a lot of goodwill. You know, the the trust with their customers. You know, especially, you know, an industry like like Uber. You know, where you're you're putting a lot of trust. You know, to get in a stranger's car. You know, to to use this app. You know, to uh, put two strangers together and put them in a very personal and and vulnerable situation. Um, I'm, I'm surprised I don't see, uh, I, I am and I'm not surprised, right? Like I know how business thinks, I, you know, I know how a lot of uh, executives uh, think, you know, and, and legal traditionally, you know, that I think the default is to, you know, share only what's absolutely necessary. Again, to Rich's point where somebody shared when they didn't have to share, but it was appreciated, you know? So, so I guess the question is more around like, do we see any, trend in uh you know companies choosing to be more transparent than they have to be you know is that going up is it going down and and maybe you know what what are the thoughts on you know how how do we is that the is that the right direction to go for everybody for both the business uh and the customer so i'll start with you brian i i'd like to think adrian that the trend is that it is okay to report 
when there is harm done and there is value to the customers, to the end users, to let them know that something happened. I'd like to think that the stigma of a security incident is just not as severe as it used to be just because of everything we've been through as an industry. There's security incidents all the time. There's big vulnerabilities all the time. We know that it's going to happen. We don't, I'd like to think we don't point fingers like we used to. If you remember what happened back during the, the target security incident, a lot of people pointed fingers at that CISO and that management team. And, and I don't know that we do that like we used to. And, and yeah, I'm, yeah, actually, I'm sorry. It was Equifax. Thank you. Um, but I'd like to think that we've been, we've been through that and it's just not as, you know, the stock price usually dips and bounces right back and, you know, people take corrective action and they might, you know, get a fine or a slap on the wrist, but I don't think you see what you used to see anymore. Like, you know, weeks of negative headlines and, and people getting fired and things like that. Um, I could be wrong, but that's kind of where I see the, the trend going. And, and personally, I think more transparency is good because I think it does build trust. And I think it shows a commitment to wanting to do the right thing. And most things, sunlight finds most things anyway. And I think one of the questions I ask myself is, if this were to get public, would I feel good about the fact that I didn't report it? And, and if the answer is that I wouldn't, then I think the recommendation would be, let's just get it out there on our terms. Because if we're not worried about it and don't think it's a big deal, um, and we think our, our users and our customers are safe, then what's the harm if we tell the story correctly? Yeah, I think maybe, uh, Rob, uh, you know, I, some of the stuff that you've done uh, fairly recently uh, makes me think you're a fan of the, the transparency route. Um, you know, what do you think is the thought process there? Is, you know, what's holding companies back from, I guess, embracing this now that it's normalized? Like, if their stock does go down, they're fairly, you know, other market forces aside, can be fairly certain that that it'll recover, that it won't have a permanent effect. You know, what, what's keeping companies from being more transparent about that? Yeah, I have a lot of experience with this on both sides, uh, both being on the uh, the vulnerability reporter or the, the problem reporter and on the uh, blue team side. And the answer to your question, I think, is that what's holding us back as individuals, that if the benefit to the company is transparency and the leadership knows this and is working towards it, the individuals involved still may have a reason why they feel that this bug is different, that this bug will impact their career, that they want to keep it silent, that um, maybe they, they will have, it will serve their internal corporate uh, image better if they're the seen as the white knight saving this issue and pre preventing it from getting out. There's all sorts of reasons why individuals may decide yeah, this bug is different, or this this breach is different, and therefore we're gonna we're gonna keep it silent. And it's it's pervasive in our industry is that we all know like the you know, security through obscurity problems. That uh, when we look at problems abstractly and logically, we know that transparency is better. But when things happen and it's us and our butts are on the line, we then make the opposite decision as individuals. Add After that, the, uh, yeah, go ahead, that, Tyler. Yeah, add to that the the problem that it's not necessarily you as an individual, right? Um, there's so many external forces in that decision. Like if it was just me as a CISO in an event that happens, I'm going to make my personal level of moral and ethics come into play. 
But now you've got a legal team with a statement. You've got a CEO who's got certain opinions. You've got board members. You've got, uh, you know, so many external forces that can force you into making decisions that may be suboptimal for your own moral or ethical compass, that it just puts it into a very, very difficult position. How do you manage um, how do you manage the pressures that would come from the business in that kind of scenario? Yeah, it happened for, for me once where it was somebody lower down the organization that said, okay, this partner that we're working with is very important. This contract is coming up for renewal and they want it kept quiet. And the partner didn't care. But this person saw themselves as their as their role is somehow working this and being the hero hero for everyone. And how do we deal with that pressure? Well, in this case, they had the ear of the CEO and the CEO came down and said, yeah, we're going to squash this thing. So um, I, I don't know of, of a way to solve it. I just know that it's a pervasive problem in the industry. I think it helps to have an, have an educated opinion and have a relationship with counsel. Uh, I think if you've got that relationship in advance and you have a educated opinion and you're supported by the law, you know, the best you can do is make a recommendation and you might have to live with the fact that the ultimate call is not yours and you can't get emotional about that. I know a lot of people in the CISO role and security in general, we can get very emotional about decisions that are not in our hands. And one thing that I talk to my team a lot about is, you know, we do the best that we can. We're truthful, we're ethical, we're honest about the work that we do. But at the end of the day, we have to realize that we might not own that decision. And that doesn't mean that we failed. It means that we did our job and we gave, we put it in the hands of the decision maker to make the decision that they wanted to make. The law is a little bit different, but sometimes when you are not legally compelled, you do have to put the decision in the hands of someone uh, and that's not you. And you just have to be okay with that. Yeah. And given the, given the, what happened with Joe though, that could be changing everything in the sense that I don't think, you know, from what I've read on the uh, issue, I don't think he put, you know, put the final call to someone else in a way that was formalized enough to say, Hey, that was not my call, but you know, that's such a gray area. It's so hard to determine whether you've done that. You better be ironclad and have your own double checks and insurances that, Hey, that was not my call. That was the CEO's call or that was the board's call. Uh, otherwise you could stand to be in deep trouble. Receipts are important. Have your receipts. Receipts are important. I love it. <laughs> I'll always get it in writing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Top top tip uh, from today's uh, from today's panel: keep your receipts. Does Does that mean that we're going to have less qualified CISOs or less? I would say people coming up that are good CISOs. Do you see them moving to more a boutique and less risky role because they're experienced, they understand the risks, there are not as many opportunities for that C level. So we're going to end up with. Uh, people that may not have as good of knowledge of the past or the history, and they end up taking some of those CISOs roles. Do you think that that inexperience is going to come into play for for some of those roles that we're going to see uh, a higher risk profile? You stole my segue, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, buddy. But yeah, that, that that's okay. Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I mean, that that was coming up. I think my favorite comment in the Discord so far while we've been having this conversation is, I can't imagine the level of pressure that CISOs have to deal with, which I think dovetails nicely into Tyler Robinson's uh, question there. So, 
Yeah, does that have an impact on the people that are willing to take the role in the future? Rich, we, we haven't heard from you in a while. Pass that to you. Yeah, it's a great question. I think I, I touched on a little bit of it earlier, but I, I do think it'll it'll separate organizations. And I do think, Tyler, your, your point is spot on. I, I do think we'll see, you know, perhaps, you know, the more experienced CISOs gravitate towards companies where there is alignment with those cultural values, good support from the GC, right? willing to kind of rehearse and talk through these decisions up front. Um, and I, I do think that that means it'll be harder for some organizations that maybe haven't been that proactive or you know just view the scope of this DSO role differently, um, which will create you know a, a separate market, which may mean you know less experienced candidates filling filling some of those roles. I think there'll be an interesting kind of bifurcation as organizations evolve some of these these structures, particularly around corporate governance. Yeah, and and to quote um, to quote my good friend Kanye West, we want prenup. Will we see a lot more prenups going into these kind of situations where uh, CISOs demand exactly what will be done on both sides, and this is where we will report, and this is where we won't, getting into writing way up front. I don't know if I would ex- expect to see something that's structured, but I think there's nuances, right? On um, you know, is is the role covered in in DNO and insurance? Um, you know, interview questions up front, right? In alignment, you know, is GC involved in determining whether or not there's there's a breach at the at the corporate level? Um, so, you know, maybe not far. It's so far as to you know something along those lines, or like full indemnification. Um, but you know, I, I do think you know as, as you step back and weigh the risk in totality, right? Going back to the context around Uber and Uber's history, right? I do think it will make a lot of CISOs question. Right. What are the organizational values and what's the kind of organizational dynamic of the leadership team that I'm walking into with an organization? Is that a personal risk that I'm I'm willing to take? I, I have a problem think- with um, the earlier comment about um, keeping all your receipts uh, and tied to what Rich just said. I think one has to really calibrate um, the, the risk appetite. Uh, of an organization to understand how much CYA do you really need to be doing, and if you take an or if you take a CISO who feels like they need to keep all the receipts uh, because um, maybe they're very risk adverse, they may not actually be the right person for an organization that is uh, willing to take a lot of risks, right? And so I think we uh, the calib- I think we have to really understand what the right calibration is because if you have though. An organization that is very risk averse, uh, critical infrastructure, large financials, then, yeah, maybe again you may need a CISO who is willing to go find and make sure that there's that they're collecting the receipts all the time. Um, but the business is also willing to slow go slower because that process is going to be um, an expected uh, activity, and that's just going to slow everything down. And then that as long as they understand that that's what they're getting, then you know so be it. But you know, you have to make sure that you have the right type of uh, risk tolerance, both on the organizational level as well as on the CISO level too. I think yeah, so. So, keeping how, the how do you ensure? I think keeping the receipts speeds things up, because as a CISO, you're you're you have all these other executives in the company who want things to happen, and your job is often to be to say no that we can't do this because of the risk, and you you but you can't be in the way and stop things. What you have to do is, is get out of the way saying, well, if that's what you want, um, write it down so that make it clear that it wasn't my decision and move on. Um, we as security professionals are always in the position, they're often in the position 
where our needs or our, our job roles conflict with others, that we're, we're in the role of stopping them from doing their job. And that's okay. That's good. And there should be tension there. And one way to solve it is simply saying, okay, we have this conflict, write down the result and then move on and not like pause everything, get hung up on this one thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with Rob on that. I think that it, for me, it's less of a CYA activity and more of a, let's document why we made the decision that we did. Let's make sure that no one can say later, I didn't know about that, or I didn't understand those details. In doing that, I think it's a way of listening and getting confirmation. And, and to Rob's point, being able to move forward together. We are now all on the same page. We agreed as documented, the decision has been made. Let's go, let's move on to the next thing. I hope I'm never in a position where I have to say, wow, I'm glad I got that email because it, it saves my butt. I would like to think that the decisions that I make and, and the work that I do, I'll save my own butt because I, I won't put myself in a, in a position where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself on the line um, because I didn't communicate properly or I made a decision and didn't tell anybody about it. For me, it's more about just, you know, there's going to be someone that comes in after me and they're probably going to want to know how this decision got made and what all the details were at the time. And for me, it's like, here you go. Here's where it is. And we got, you know, everyone copied and I got these attachments and here we go. You can figure it out now. Yeah, I think Sunil made a good point in that, um, you know, that, that was making me think like there's so many different kinds of CISOs out there. You know, I think, you know, back in the old days, most of the CISOs probably came out of the IT organization. You know, but, uh, you know, these days, you know, I think it's probably more likely, you know, you have a CISO who understands GAP better than the OCI mop, for example. You know, so how do you how do you ensure that alignment, you know, and, and I guess what since we have CISOs here, we'll take this from the CISO perspective. You know, how do you make sure you're joining a company where you don't feel like you have to CYA everything, where you're not cringing at every decision they're, they're throwing at you? So maybe uh, maybe rich for that. I, mean, I, I think it's critical as part of the interview process, right? To to really get a feel for. I mean, one, I think it's telling who is on the interview panel for a CISO role, right? And how how that then plays into to how an organization thinks about kind of the governance structure and who who the the key stakeholders are. Uh, but you can certainly pressure test some of those those questions right through an interview process to get a feel for what is the organization's risk appetite, what are the cultural values. How have they conducted business in the past? Right. I mean, if, if we tie it back to the Uber example, right, it's pretty obvious that Uber had a history of breaking laws or kind of pushing pushing boundaries, right? So there's a conscious decision of you know walking into to that room with an organization that has kind of a risk appetite and tolerance the 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 way that it it, it does. And you know, I think tying that back to you know the, the conversation around keeping receipts, you know, I I, I see kind of both sides of, of that debate, but I think there's a big difference between, you know deliberate or mature risk management practices to support the business and keep things moving at speed within kind of the organization's risk tolerance, if you will. But then there's the the big delta, like what, what happens in some crisis situation where there is a big decision that maybe the CISO disagrees with. Um, and there, I think it's it's the mix of, you know, keep, keeping receipts, right? If you dissented with an opinion, you know, do you do you have that on record that you you dissented? Um, but it does create, you know, that situation where you've got to step back and think about, you know, is this kind of the right alignment with, you know, my risk appetite as a CISO and the organization's risk risk appetite? And do I want to kind of continue to be in this room? 
Right. And I think that's that's some of the uh I guess lead up that led to to Mudge's testimony, right? A difference in risk appetite than how how Twitter was being being run. Right. I think that, that was that, I think that the Mudge story that was, has the opposite lesson is that Mudge's version of events was different than uh the CEO's version of events. Mudge says the, the CEO asked me to lie. The CEO says, well, well I was asked for something different. And it's not cover your ass so much as, well, we have this dispute and both sides give a different version of events. And if we write it down and both sign it, then we have the same version of events. And I think that's really the issue, not covering your ass so much as uh, making sure that everyone, that we all are in agreement on something that, that we're in agreement about what the, the issues are. Yeah, and I think it's, um... Yeah, so so this is something I wonder. Like the Mudge case is interesting because it did seem like there was alignment when he was brought in by Jack, you know. And when you say the CISO, like he was brought in by one guy, you know, and like most of the stuff that he whistle blew on happened after the the CISO seat changed over. Uh, it seemed like so. You know, we we often see the you know the CISO role. Um, turnover often, you know, that I, I don't know if this, uh, you know, that this statistic is correct, but something like three, eighteen months, uh, companies changing out CISOs. And I, th I think there's an assumption that, you know, they're, they're all getting fired as soon as a breach happens, you know, but I think, uh, and, and you all tell me, you know, it seems like it's, it's much more complex than that. Like, like I would imagine a good chunk of it is somebody realizing there's not good alignment there. You know, or maybe they're not growing in the job or they didn't have the, um, you know, the control they were promised, the ability to make a difference in the organization that they were hoping to, to have. You know, let, let's dive into that a bit. Like, as we talk about this alignment with the company, you know, why are CISOs leaving companies or companies, you know, deciding to part their, their CISOs? Maybe uh, let's go to Sunil. <laughs> well, actually, probably not me because uh, uh, I haven't left um, a, a previous CISO role yet, and uh, I don't plan to leave one right now. So maybe you should ask uh, Rich or, or Brian, who's had previous CISO roles. Yeah, sure, sure. It doesn't have to be a personal experience, you know. I'm, I'm CISOs talk to each other, right? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you, yeah, sure you have like uh, a, a you, general yeah, feel for it, you know. Yeah, and you hit all the the ones that uh, I'm most familiar with in terms of not having the right level of authority or the influence or the um, even budget or headcount. I mean, headcount is definitely one of those where. Um, oh, yeah. uh, anyway, but uh, I, I was just talking to a friend of mine who just left uh, her organization, and she just she realized that the organization uh, just saw her as a checkbox, and no one wants to see themselves as that. So that's that was the reason why she left. I think organizations are complex and I think that there's a lot of reasons that people leave, but I think fundamentally, if you were to get a new boss, you would need to start all over again. Just like Rich said with the interview process, how are decisions going to be made? What's your, what's your risk appetite? How do you like to be communicated with um, taking that temperature all over again? And sometimes that just doesn't work. Some, I mean, the CISO role is complicated, because you're generally not the most well-liked person because you do have to take stances that are sometimes going to be unpopular that could be perceived as 
you don't want me to succeed or you want to slow me down. And sometimes even when you try your best, you have to look in the mirror and say, I think this org just needs a new voice. And, and that's okay sometimes. It doesn't mean that you failed. It just means that sometimes it's, it's time to move on and, and find something different. Um, so I think that could have something to do with it. But I do think also whenever you've got management shakeups, um, you know, the, I mean, the CISO of, of Twitter resigned in the last 24 hours. And you, would, you could probably say at a high level, it had something to do with the management shakeup over the last two weeks. And these are just sure. things that happen, you know, in orgs, large and small. Yeah, I, I imagine companies aren't just coming out and saying, you know, what we need is a mediocre CISO that doesn't have a lot of ambition and does, isn't going to try and do a bunch of stuff. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know how that uh, if, job If any big enterprise wants to come out and say that for half a million dollars and I can go in with the prenups, I'll be your mediocre CISO. I'd fit that bill just fine. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, I mean, coming back to the chilling effect, um, what, what kind of advice, uh, starting with Rich this time, what, what kind of advice would you give both people who are currently CISOs or maybe aspiring to be a, a, a CISO to, um, I don't know, co come into this, come into their next role more comfortably? Yeah, I, I think my, the, the top ones on my list are, really that alignment with the organization's risk appetite right are are you comfortable managing to the level of risk that the rest of the the company wants to manage to um and then the second is and sunil touched on this this earlier right the the one biggest takeaway i had from the, this whole uber incident was go back and re-review the ir plan make sure decision making criteria roles and responsibilities are crystal clear and I, I think kind of inherent in that you know, we, we talk about you know making it the the gc's decision but i don't think that's it i think it's a bigger thing of right transferring the risk right nothing should ever be the ciso's decision solely right is there a committee involvement with legal right Th these things need to be corporate decisions and the right governance structure has to be in place and brian um like, like and I like that you shared that it, it actually, you know, this this event changed, like, like you had to-do lists off of this event, right? Like you're, you're going to check that that IR form. Brian, Brian is, is there anything um, you took away from this, you know, that, that uh, you know, you felt you needed to look deeper into, double click on, or, you know, that you would advise others to do after seeing how this played out? Well, I think I wanted people on my leadership team, my colleagues in, in management to see it and to be aware of it. Because I do think that even though we don't have all the details yet, I think just reading through what the prosecution put out, um, I think it's a really interesting case study in how decisions are made and supported as it, as it comes to cybersecurity and managing cybersecurity incidents. So, so for me, I wanted to make sure that I got it in front of these decision makers so that they understood this is what's happening out in the marketplace and someday we might have a really bad day and we do not want to be in this position right so how does this change our calculus about how we practice how we prepare for an incident how we communicate with each other who actually owns the decision these are all conversations that we've had as a result of me getting this in front of people because i think if you're not i mean that's what i would say to aspiring CISOs that 
it is a hard job, right? But I don't think this needs to have a chilling effect. I think aspiring CISOs will be better because they get to learn from things like this. Because um, I don't believe that this has happened before, that we've had an incident quite like this one. And I think as an industry, I think we'll be better for it. We'll, we'll know more because of it. Spoken like a parent, uh, a teachable yeah. moment, right? Such a rosy <laughs> outlook. Goodness, you're the exact opposite of me. Well done. I mean, if you don't have optimism in this uh, field, what do you have, you know? Right, right. So uh, so as we wrap this up, I'm going to come to each of you, you know, just kind of for final thoughts here. And, you know, coming back to the title, you know, is this an anomaly? Is it, uh, you know, I, I like the idea of this as a, as a teachable moment, you know, that's hopefully an, an anomaly. Uh, or, or is it a uh, is it an important precedent? Both, but like, what what are your main takeaways from this? Uh, I'll come to you first, Rob. I think my main takeaway is that uh, we should stress that the CISO's role, that their adversary, that they're protecting the corporation against, is as much the FTC and the government, or the police, as much as it is from the hackers. It's you know, when you handily breach poorly, then the FCC comes along and forces you to sign a consent decree and then comes and finds you because you had complied to it and so on and so forth, the whole compliance angle. And I think that this is something that Joe Sullivan kind of forgot that he was so focused on the hackers that he, he didn't do the due diligence of what he needs to do for the, for the government. That's it. Right, good stuff, uh, Sunil. So I think one call to action for uh, for us is that um, we want to truly professionalize our practice. If we think about um, um, like accounting, we have you mentioned it earlier. We have uh, generally accepted accounting principles, and uh, if as long as you follow that, you don't get sued. Your company may still go out of business, but you don't get sued. In security, we don't have the equivalent uh, generally accepted security principles. And I'm not talking appliance and stuff. I'm talking about uh, e easily implementable structures that we can put in place. And what I think we need to have is the equivalent of GAP, or you can call it GASP, I guess, um, <laughs> which gives us the safe harbor for us to not get sued. Uh, I, I don't want to be in a situation like that, uh, uh, the Drizzly uh, situation where not only might I get sued personally, but it also, I mean, sorry, uh, yeah, may, not only may I get sued personally, but that uh, carries to my next organization, which was the concern for, for the Drizzly case. So anyway, the, I think the call to action for us is to really consider this as a bellwether moment to say, uh, what do we need to do to potentially uh, professionalize our practice, put in these sort of um, core principles that we can abide by so that when, as long as we practice that, and by the way, we may still get hacked. We may still get um, you know, a, um, a breach and such, but we at least follow these general principles and um, that's what saves our skin. Yeah, may, maybe, uh, maybe Drizzly set a uh, standard here. We can call it the, the Drizzly uh, CEO security principle, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> you know, I, I think certainly some of these precedents, uh, it'd be interesting to see if they carry on or if they're just building blocks and, and we go further than that. But I, I saw a lot of people, a lot of commentary when I posted about Drizzly was, um, you know, that people didn't see that as onerous at all. Like that's, you know, people are saying, I, I, I thought it, that was already, 
you know, what they're putting on the CEO was something that was required by by law for him to do. So, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see. I suppose uh, coming to uh, to Rich next. Your so to your original question of uh, of anomaly or not, I, I do think the Uber case is is a quite a bit of an anomaly, right? Uber itself is an anomaly, um, but I think there's so many dynamics there on you know the the role of legal, what their organizational structure was, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that there's not a ton we can learn from it. Um, and I I love Sunil's analogy and the the tie to Gap. I mean, just kind of pulling that thread a little further, right? You look at kind of the, the finance world and, and CFOs, right? They're they're concerned about SEC obligations around disclosures. What do they do? Everything runs through a disclosure committee. So it's not the CFO's sole decision, right? I think we're, we're talking about a lot of those same parallels as we think about breach handling, right? Should be you know, a committee and corporate decision, not on the, the CISO or any particular executive on their own to enforce those or, or corporate risks and corporate corporate decisions. And Brian, coming to you last uh, because of that inspiring optimism that you gave earlier. No pressure, but uh, you, you get to be last. Go here. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I think I, I would agree with with other folks and that I think this is an anomaly, one that we can learn from. If anything, it just reinforces that the currency that CISOs trade in is trust, not only with you know regulators and our customers, with our teams as well and our colleagues in the org. And I think if you're making decisions that maintain that trust. People aren't always going to like you. People aren't always going to agree with you. But if at the end of the day, they trust you and you know they know that you are doing things uh, that are on the up and up and that you are, you know, at the at the highest level looking out for people and for the company and its customers, you know, every night I think you can go to bed feeling good about, about the work that you did. I think it's clear here that Uber as a company didn't do things that really maintain that trust. And I think Joe himself made some decisions that did not um, did not maintain that trust. And I think that's that's where they are, where they are and where he is, where he is. And, and you know, I wish him well as they go into the next phase of the case. I love what you you said something powerful there. You know, you, you don't have to you know, you, you don't have to be liked, but you have to be trusted. I don't know why I keep bringing it back to parenting, but, you know, I feel like that kind of applies there. There too. You don't have to be your kid's best friend, but um, they they do need to to be able to trust. Um, so I love I love that. Uh, Tyler Shields or, or Robinson, you you uh, have any thoughts before we wrap up here? No, I think if the, not, that's okay. uh, the group has, has nailed it as a whole. Honestly, uh, adding to anything that they've said is is not doing them a service. So appreciate yeah. everyone showing up and, and doing that. I'm in the same boat. I'm not a CISO, never been a CISO, don't claim to be CISO. And uh, quite frankly, I'm scared of what you guys have to deal with every day. And I thank you for putting in the time to do it and trying to keep us all safe and secure. So thank you. Thank you all for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Big thanks to Sunil, Brian, Rob, and Rich for joining us at Enterprise Security Weekly today for this special two-part episode. Um, big thanks, guys. And thanks also to Tyler Shields and Tyler Robinson for joining me today and, and jumping in with some, some excellent questions. Uh, big thanks to everyone listening or watching today for this week's special episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. We'll see you next week.